Hello and welcome to Book of Leaves. My name is Cara Carney and I am your host. Welcome back to Book of Leaves, an Irish podcast where I interview people in Ireland or who are from the country who are doing something good for the planet. Could be anything at all, any kind of category, as long as they're making the world a better place and it's linked to environmentalism. And we take a leaf out of their book to add to our own way of eco-friendly living. And there has been such an eclectic array of guests on the show. I'm very proud of this passion project of mine. And in this episode, I am finally going to be chatting to Laura Broxon, who is the person behind NARA, the National Animal Rights Campaign, who have successfully banned the likes of fur farming in Ireland uh, with some help from other groups and people, of course. But Laura is just an astounding activist. I mean, if you have been at a protest that has been um, campaigning for human rights or animal rights or a protest against any form of oppression, really, chances are Laura has been there. They are just such an inspiration and I can't wait for you to listen to this episode and of course we're going to be delving into Nara's biggest campaign at the moment which is hair coursing. If you don't know what that is or how you can help, bear with us because you will hear all that you need to know. Before we get into that, I just want to give a thank you to everyone who showed up to the Sustainable Life School SDGs Fest which happened uh, there at the end of September. My days are all confused but we had a lovely panel talk and then a lovely creative session. It was just so lovely. It was just a lovely evening so I'm very grateful to Natalie and Diane for having me part of that event and if anyone would like me to either be on a panel or facilitate a panel or do some kind of creative approach workshop I love that kind of stuff so please do get in touch and you'd also be supporting me as uh, as an activist as well and speaking of support if you do like this podcast the work that I do you can subscribe on Patreon patreon.com forward slash book of leaves I try to keep this a very accessible platform so you don't get any bonus episodes because I want everyone to be able to listen to the podcast whatever they're financial income is but I am thinking inspired by the last guest I had on Roisin who was suggesting that I kind of create some book lists and movie lists for people so I will be adding to that soon but yeah you won't get exclusive content but it is a way that is crucial for me to to support the running of the podcast all the little fees that come up the different subscriptions that I have and welcome to two new Patreons Stephen and Olivia just thank you so much for your support and to all the other patrons I have as well and if like me you have a very sporadic income and you cannot commit to something once a month indefinitely no bother you can also um, donate once off on buymeacoffee.com forward slash book of leaves and it may or may not go towards coffee it'll most likely go towards Zencaster or something like that but I could also get a coffee or hot chocolate with it myself in future oh and speaking of hot chocolate as well I've been on another podcast called Woman Up by Hazel Larkin. You'll be listening to this on Monday, so it came out yesterday. The hot chocolate reminded me of that because we went on a nice little uh, hot chocolate buzz at the beginning talking about the nicest hot chocolate, how to make nice hot chocolate. And I talk about my creativity. It's not exactly linked to environmentalism, but it is linked to, I guess, activism. And I do talk about Book of Leaves and the play that I'm working on now. So you can check that out. I'll leave a link in the show notes as well. And of course, I'm still doing 
doing the play that I've been talking about in the last couple of episodes about a transgender Irish war hero that's very much unknown called Albert Cashier. So you can check that out in your local theatre. We'll be coming to Dublin in November for four nights, so that's going to be very exciting. But I'm going to introduce you now to Laura. I hope you can take a leaf out of their book and be open-minded when listening to them. And the timestamps as well, if you only want to hear specific things that we talk about you'll find that all below but yeah thank you so much for listening here is laura and i will catch you after so my name is laura broxon i'm the founder of the national animal rights association i started that in 2007 um, I had been an activist for a couple of years before that, before deciding to to start up my own group. Um, and I've been just working away ever since. Um, I'm also involved in anti-racist campaigns, anti-fascist campaigns. I was involved in the Vegans for Choice campaign during repeal, um, campaign for marriage equality. So we try and overlap with NARA on human rights issues as much as possible, um, as well as aiming for our Ireland utopia of veganism. So a little bit of everything. Why did you become vegan in the first place? And why did you want to become active in general? Well, I went vegetarian when I was 12. um, And that was because my parents had loads of rescue animals where we lived in North County Dublin um, at the time. So when I was 12, I kind of connected the dots and, you know, if I was loving and caring for animals all day, every day, then how was I then coming in for my dinner and eating murdered animals? So when I was 12, I connected the dots and went vegetarian and then my family went vegetarian as well. They thought it was a great idea. Um, About a year later, myself and my mom went vegan. Uh, without ever knowing any other vegans um, my mom read about it in a book and showed it to me and we said oh yeah makes That's sense so cool. um, and then by the time I was 14 I figured that veganism and um, dietary changes wasn't enough I needed to get involved and make other people more aware of what I know and then I just started joining other groups and I got involved um, firstly with the PETA, boo, um, the PETA uh, youth uh, street team. So uh, obviously, like at the time at 14, I didn't realize how racist, misogynistic, sexist, etc. PETA are, mm. but that's how I started at the, in the PETA youth group. Um, and then it kind of developed uh, from there. Wow. There's, it's such a, you've such a long activism CV, like from a teenage age. It's amazing to see, like, how did you then get into activism on a human rights uh, level as well like were your family kind of active too or were you kind of I don't know the mold breaker for that like what where who was your inspiration for actually getting up showing up yourself and getting involved with things well I mean I have to credit my mom for like bringing me to every protest (laughs) she had she couldn't let me go by myself at 14 (laughs) and uh, so she would bring me everywhere and because uh, she was worried if I went like by myself so my mom like supported me encouraged me so did my dad and um, you know then it just sort of developed now at the time when I started campaigning for animal rights issues I kind of figured oh human rights issues must be all resolved and sorted and obviously the only thing left to Mm. work on is animal rights so normally when people see the other way around they start off with human rights campaigns and then it leads into animal rights campaigns but for me it was the opposite and it was getting involved and mostly with groups in the UK and they had very strong anti-fascist sentiment um, and that was sort of drilled into everybody and for me it was like wait fascism is still a thing, racism is still a thing. In my very privileged white life, it, it didn't occur that, to me that at the time at 14 that all these things were still yeah. issues. 
um, and they they were and are. Um, and so I got my introduction into the need um, to have joint human rights campaigns from activists in the UK and the importance of doing both. Um, and then obviously then got involved in every sort of group there was over here. So I'll go to every big rally there is. Um, I'll lobby at any big sort of campaign like repeal or marriage equality and, you know, like anything that needs support, Nara and myself um, will go along and support because that's what we as vegans should do. How would you explain the link between human exploitation and animal exploitation? A lot of people see them separately. Uh, For me, all oppression is equal. So, I mean, I don't want to see cruelty or abuse or use of any living creature. And for me, like the issue comes down to consent too. Everyone should you know, be able to consent to anything that is happening to them or their surroundings or their life. Um, and that goes for humans and animals. So I don't differentiate that one species has a higher rank or than another. I see all suffering as equal. There's different types of suffering, but I wouldn't rank one above the other. And I just want to see mm. equality for all and zero oppression for all. For vegans, it's important not to forget that human rights issues are still a thing. And I think for human rights activists, it's important for them to acknowledge that animals are oppressed and used against their will and consent too. Um, so I think we can mutually learn for each other. But for me, the, the two yeah. are the one. And I've, I was reading an author, Irish author, Emma Dabiri recently, who was explaining how, oh, I can't remember their their metaphor, which is perfect, but like they were explaining how the oppress- oppression that harms each living creature, human or non-human, it comes from the same source like it's this if we dismantle oppression at the very bottom the pillars that are built on top of that will all collapse but I would agree and I think you know a lot of this comes down to you know whether it's the patriarchy capitalism colonialism they're all intrinsically connected as to why humanity is in the state it's currently in and that's the exploitation of animals and people so if we smash the patriarchy smash (laughs) capitalism you know I think then (laughs) every Everything is going to, to come into yeah. place. And you, you know? can have a lot of fun while doing it. Smashing things can be really fun when they're a really cruel, <laughs> yeah. oppressive systems. Uh, when yeah. you were explaining there about going and showing up to like repeal and yes, equality, because that's what we should do. How does that feel for you in your chest? Like when you show up? Well, that's where it, when I imagine myself going to protest and when I do go to protest, I don't know, I'm, ha- I'm having this feeling like in my chest of like, excitement and pride but also like a bit of anxiety over wanting to get the thing achieved to put so much time into that I hope that you enjoy it but also can imagine there's lots of other things going on like how does it feel for you to be so immersed and showing up to all these different protests how does that materialize well I mean for me I think it's like a burning internal rage (laughs) that I have all the time (laughs) and then that (laughs) That fuels my energy um, because all of these things, whether it's, you know, the exploitation um, or oppression of animals or humans, it's all very heavy and it's all very sad and it's all very upsetting. And I would much rather spend my days like not protesting and not being Mm. angry. But until the the world is perfect, you know, I, I just feel we all have a moral obligation to keep going on. So for repeal, for example, every time I went to any sort of leafleting or canvassing event, I would be expecting 
arguments and debates and I'd be expecting people to be talking down to me as what myself or anyone should be should or shouldn't be doing with their bodies so I would already be getting amped up ready for Mm -hmm. debate now like what happened in my experience lobbying for repeal was 90% of people I interacted with were supportive so there was lots of hugs and high fives and you know it was like a more of a positive sort of experience but every time I would just be amped up, ready for for a, a kind of a, a verbal heated confrontation, and then that kept kept me like I think my rage keeps me energetic and <laughs> ready to roll sometimes. But <laughs> obviously, I prefer not to to feel like you know um, angry all the time. But I feel like it's either that or be sad, yeah. <laughs> you know. And I feel like with me. Is the horrible stuff that I have to see or look at or hear about or read about every single day. If I was not to turn that into rage, I would just be a crying mm. mess all day, every day. Mm. So for me, I turn the sadness into anger and use it, you know, for kind of righteous, productive anger um, to try and fuel it to get things mm. done. So that's that's what I feel like when I'm attending a protest or a leafleting session or a debate. I just feel like on fire with that anger of trying to make yeah, things. That's better. so amazing. That's just that's it's just me. Really, though. It's a re- well, I'd say a lot of people can relate to it. It's a very very relatable description, and a lot of like if you're say I experienced burnout there before, and I went down a hole of reading like Joanna Macy's work and other activists kind of work on how to kind of deal with this and anger and sadness and apathy and there's a lot of talk about feeling rage and what to do with rage and you can hear it so clearly when you're talking that yes what you feel is anger and rage but it's all coming from love it's coming from love of of other our fellow creatures and humans and and respect and I think other people that aren't in the movement get a little bit like oh god those activists are a bit angry for me now and like that in a negative way that it's scary or something but it's like this anger is coming out of pure love you know it's compassionate yeah. anger. It's not violent anger. It's compassionate anger. Two very anger. different types. Yeah, I'm going to get that printed on a t-shirt. Like, I, I'm compassionately angry. Yeah. Before we go on to more work that NARA is doing, there can, there can be a lot of friction between environmentalists and vegans because vegans want to erase the oppression of all living beings and environmentalists sometimes kind of want to say, well, farming can also be good for the environment and we should be able to eat meat if it's not bad for the environment etc what do you think is needed from non-vegan environmentalists I think they need to listen with an open Mm. mind um and I think sometimes you know I I would imagine that they come up against the same frustration when they're trying to deal with people who are not environmentally concerned and they probably feel why won't people listen and why won't people make these changes and we have the facts we have the knowledge why aren't people listening and then they're faced with a vegan and they don't yeah. want to hear it. Um, so I feel that they need to sit down and be open and not take it as a personal affront or attack to them or the farming community um, and try and be a little, bore, a little more sympathetic to animals and recognize that they are sentient. Because sometimes I feel environmentalists think that, you know, animals are just like a tree or a blade of grass, something that's out there in the wilds that we can, you know, either cull or help to really increase breeding. Like there's some like pawns in a game when they're living, breathing, feeling yeah. creatures that have have brains, you know, can think, can feel, they are sentient. And I just find that whenever I have tried to engage with environmentalists, 
they tend to shut down really fast and not want to listen. And usually what I will get is, well, it's their decision and each to their own and the animals don't get to make a choice. Um, And environmentalists, I feel they know so much and do so much and care so much about the planet. They just need to be willing to listen to animal rights activists. And even if they don't particularly like animals or care about animals, I think they need to take it on board, even from an environmental statistics perspective, and then maybe start listening to what we have to say about compassion and about how animals feel and how they think. And I I wonder sometimes with some people who don't have that empathy towards animals, have they ever had much experience in engaging with an animal? You know, have they ever had a companion animal? And most of the time, it seems that they would not. So I... I don't know. I just feel listening is really important and taking it on board. And, you know, we've no problem with, you know, plant farmers. Yeah. <laughs> we've no problem with anyone growing fruit or vegetables or anything. And, you know, there are reports that have been made, one from uh, James O'Donovan from um, Nature Rising, that proves that, anim- that animal agriculture could be gotten rid of in Ireland and it could be more environmentally sustainable and economically viable if people were willing to listen and willing to switch. So there's definitely points out there that prove that it could happen, but people need to be willing to take it on board. That's such a good point um, because I think we care so much about landscapes and nature and this tree in in the UK that's been cut down, the sycamore tree, for example, up or over that, which is absolutely justified, but where's the uproar over you know the fell trees for hs2 that corporations do every day and the uproar for the thousands uh, thousands of animals killed every every hour in the country you know it's it's a it's, yeah. it's very mismatched and it's really good if you're aligning your principles align them all like and you might be filled with rage and anger and sadness but it, I don't know it's just more honest and more truthful and it's honoring the actual sentience that exists that is completely different to the life in trees which is still remarkable um you know what goes on between the mycelium and the trees but it's not it's on a different level to what pigs (laughs) feel and what what rabbits feel and everything like that um so yeah listening I think is a very is a very important thing that they absolutely um need to do is there anything else that you want to say about like um friction you've come up with in the movement before the next question well, I suppose like the the friction that I've had would be more so um, with conservation groups mm. that um, you know, like like the Irish Wildlife Trust who want to have culls of deer yeah. to save saplings of trees and things. And that just doesn't make sense to me mm. at all if you're a wildlife yeah. trust. Um, so again, I think, you know, environmentalist groups, uh, conservation groups, and uh, they need to, to sit down and listen because, you know, when I'm confronted with something that maybe I'm doing that's not as environmentally friendly or I should be switching to something or changing something I take it on board Mm -hmm. and if I can act in a more ethical way or reconsider things maybe I didn't think about before I'll take it on board I won't take it as a personal insult or affront I you know I I'm happy to listen I'm happy to take it in 
Um, and if they would do the same, I think then we'd all get along. Yeah, a lot I think there's so there's so much. And I even oh my god, even the last few days I was hanging out with my friends and people taking things personally. I'm like, why are you taking that personally? Like I'm just saying a little thing or watching someone else. I'm like, no, it's it's all we're all trying to kind of like improve. You know, we're all just trying to do better. And it's not nice to know that you haven't been doing something maybe the right way or the best way, but it is a nice feeling when you correct it and you acknowledge it. Much nicer than the kind of cognitive dissonance that even I did for years and years and years before going oh I I need to change something here so yeah we were talking talking about it at VegFest about the culling that like you know the Irish Wildlife Trust and groups here want to do to protect trees but like that's not like a long-term solution that the the system is broken our ecosystem in Ireland is broken because animals have been removed from it there are certain types of of animals that have been killed off and are extinct like wolves and like lynx and because of that then the next species the deer have been able to go roam wild and some of them are invasive because why humans and then there's goats that are being because they're being farmed there's loads of them so they're allowed you know go everywhere and eat the trees like it's not it's not feasible to just continue culling animals and I had Owen Dalton on the podcast before and not only was he he's suggesting that we reintroduce the lynx because it's a pa- it's a lone animal instead of a pack animal it's smaller and cuter and just there's less of a kind of negative kind of view of them like there will be of wolves it could be an easy stepping stone but he was also saying how culling turns into kind of like an open call for hunting licenses they're granted and you can just go out and shoot and you're helping in inverted commas but what hunters end up doing is shooting the healthiest biggest looking stallion that they can see and what a wolf or a lynx would do is kill the weakest animal and that's part of the natural ecosystem we don't necessarily need that as hunters and then the like it's just yeah it's very cruel the system is very broken and culls just don't fit into the natural way of things like I don't don't get it exactly and another another point to that is that there hasn't been a um, survey on the actual population of deer in Ireland or the or if you could even subcategorize that into the what amount and what species so they're always talking about these culls and needing to kill off all these deer without actually knowing how many there actually are and then the the issue I would have with the reintroduction of lynx or wolves is is that where would you get them yeah that's true (laughs) probably a zoo (laughs) and then when you reintroduce them what's going to happen the first day they wander into a farm and eat a sheep they're going to be shot and then it's going to be like oh we better eradicate all the lynx or we better eradicate all the wolves so like what I'm always saying is like leave everything alone nature always sorts itself out eventually if we just leave Mm. it so like you know whether like the the population of, of deer explodes or not it will sort itself out. Same with rabbits, you know, same with any type of species that they decide they want to get rid of, like gray squirrels, red squirrels. Everyone wants to kill gray squirrels too. And the reason that they do better than the red squirrel is because of the deforestation and habitat destruction that we have caused. If everything was how it would have been hundreds of years ago, they could coexist quite well. So everything that happens is because of us not because yeah. of the species yeah oh you know? no that's a, that's a very valid point to make absolutely um and then there's a, there's we've loads that we, that we could get through but I know Nara is really busy <laughs> working on lots of different campaigns and you gave them a kind of brief introduction at the start but do you want to kind of delve a little bit deeper into the work that Nara as opposed to Laura sp- uh, specifically focuses on 
even though their two are very interesting. Yeah, well, at the, <laughs> yeah. Uh, at the moment, our big campaign would be to ban hair coursing. Um, and this is a follow-up from our successful campaign to ban <laughs> fur farming. We're using the exact same, <laughs> they were using the exact same template um, we did with that, which means we're lobbying politicians, we're traveling around the country doing outreach, we're protesting the Department of Agriculture every week and trying to get that pressure on. And, you know, we, we did a bill with Paul Murphy that's gone past first stage, waiting to go to second stage. And then the Social Democrats, um, Jennifer Whitmore, uh, has proposed her own bill. So there's actually two bills Amazing. to ban hair coursing up to go to second stage at the moment. Um, and then coupled with that, the National Parks and Wildlife Services did a survey on um, hairs post-release from coursing. So they got 20 hairs, put a GPS on them that were not coursed, and then 20 that were coursed. Now, I don't believe in interfering with animals for that kind of thing anyway, but they did it. And the results were that out of the 20 released post-coursing, they were only able to find one again, which would assume that the coarse hairs all died shortly after release yeah. and the non-coarse hairs, they were able to keep account of the majority of them. So between two bills that are set to be debated in government and the National Parks and Wildlife Services doing a survey, which basically proves that the hairs released after coursing mm. die. I mean, what's left for what, what else do we have to do to convince the government it's the right okay. thing to do? Um, Sorry, Laura, can I just interrupt so and ask you to explain to people who might not know or seen what hair coursing is? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so these coursing clubs, there's about there was about 90 clubs um, last year that registered to trap and net hair. So what it is, is they go around um, the, the countryside and they net hairs. So they flush hairs out of hedgerows and grasslands um, with dogs and lights and they net them and bring them back into an enclosure and train them to run up and down a track. So they're kept around roughly about six to eight weeks at least at a time. Um, and then when they are trained uh, good enough for the, the coursing trials, they are released one at a time in front of two dogs. So the dogs are basically competing and bets are placed on which dog wins. So it, it means that the winner is the one that turns the hair first. And that simply means changes mm. direction. So hair is released, two dogs running down a track, one dog makes the hair change direction, that's the winner. Um, and that's what coursing is. The dogs are muzzled, but it doesn't mean the hares are not terrified. It doesn't mean that they're not trampled on, flung up in the air, get their backs broken or are killed or get a heart attack shortly afterwards. So it's incredibly cruel. Uh, we're one of the last countries in Europe to not ban it. Um, and it's all just for entertainment and mm. money. So that's what hair coursing is. And then most hares are run at least twice during the coursing season. So they have gone through it once being chased and ravaged by dogs. And then if they survive it, they have to go through it again. Then they are released. And then obviously with the GPS trackers, it proves that they don't yeah. last very long after release due to the trauma they suffered. So it's a very cruel blood sport that belongs in the history books. It doesn't belong in Ireland in twenty. And when is the hair coursing season? So basically it's already started. They're already got their netting licenses um, and the trials are going to be starting soon in the next couple of weeks. And then what happens is different coursing clubs 
compete against each other. So they whittle down the winner dogs from each club and then it goes to a finals in Clonmel in Oh my February. God. I didn't realize it was like a big tournament thing. I thought it was like just, oh it Jesus. Is, yeah. Oh my God. Okay. And there's, I think the statistics are like around 5,000 hares on the island of Ireland are trapped every year. Yeah, that's roughly the average. Sometimes it's more, sometimes yeah. it's less. Um, last year it was around 3,300. Other years, it's been more than 5,000. So roughly the average is around Either that. Either way, one would be too many. So Yeah, one is one too many. Yeah, so it's a it's a bar- barbaric sport that I think when I looked it up, we're one of three EU countries who haven't banned it. So when I was like, oh, we're one of the last, I'm like, surely there's another, there's a good few others. But no, no, we are literally one of three European Union countries that haven't banned it, which is frankly embarrassing to say the least. Like it's it's banned in Northern Ireland. Yeah, well, yeah. So, oh God, it's just and and the the, the UK, <laughs> so, England is where yeah. it originated. I think in the UK, it originated the sport there, and they have banned it. So why can't we? Yeah. So don't listen to anyone that says it's an Irish tradition. <laughs> no, you're so right. Um, how does this then interfere <laughs> yeah. with the biodiversity of hares? Hares are obviously known to be native Irish animals. They're steeped in mythology. Like they're typically loved. Does this impact biodiversity would you say if if environmentalists kind of go well this is not our game to fight it's an animal rights thing as opposed to environmental thing how would you explain it well um for firstly um i would say that yes it absolutely is an environmental issue too it's not just an animal rights or a cruelty issue um and apart from coursing one of the biggest thing that affects the hair population in ireland is animal agriculture, grasslands being destroyed. So there was a survey done between 2017 and 2019, and it estimates that the hare population in Ireland is between 111,000 and 449,000 hares. So that's a big jump. (laughs) There's two different sizes of the scale, first of all. So there's not a great degree of accuracy into how many there actually are. The Irish hare is specific to Ireland and it's protected under the Wildlife Act of 1976 with an exemption um, that allows for coursing. So basically, if you or I were to do what they do, uh, to hares, we'd be prosecuted for um, interfering with a protected species. But if we were decided that we wanted to open up our own coursing club, we'd be allowed to do whatever. So that, that's a side note to the environmental issue. But basically, apart from the threat of animal agriculture to them, this is an issue that comes up with coursing. And it was actually brought up in the doll by Jennifer Whitmore recently. 50% of the, the hares caught would be female, mm-hmm. correct? Correct. And you are not allowed to course a hare that is either pregnant or nursing, Mm. right? But they have no way of checking that. So the hares that are captured could actually have babies that they were taken from, or they could be currently pregnant. And then obviously being coursed would make the most likely lose a pregnancy. And if they did already give birth, then the infant hares, the leverets are not going to survive. So simply by catching these hares, 50% of whom are female, and let's just even say a third of whom could be pregnant or have just given birth, you are directly affecting their population as a species. And when they go around flushing the hedgerows and flushing the grasslands for any sort of little nest these hares might have, you are pushing them out of their own areas, first of all. And then when they 
catch them, they're supposed to tag them, number them and say where they're from. I don't believe that they are going to do that 100% accurately. And then when they're released post-coursing, are they really going to put them to the same chunk of grassland they got them from and know which one is from which? Even with tagging, even with numbers, can they actually do that? And what happens wild animals when they are taken from their natural surroundings and put somewhere different? They're disorientated, they're confused, and they could get into fights with others of their own species over territory. And then what's that going to do apart from affecting them physically, mentally, emotionally, it's going to affect them as a species. So simply by coursing them, you are messing up the natural biodiversity of the Irish hare in its natural environment simply by just catching them. So based on their the gender, pregnancy status, and location of capture, location of release, you're affecting them. And even let's just forget about them for a minute too. If you're going through fields of grassland, flushing out hares, you're going to be scaring other animals too. That's going to be affecting badgers. It's going to be affecting mice. It's going to be affecting other birds and other nesting creatures. And they're going to be frightened and disrupted and leaving burrows or leaving nests. So it has a ripple effect. So I think environmentalists need to look at this and take it on board. And these surveys, one of the first surveys that was done on hares was done around 2007 with the Irish Coursing Club. And their survey was completely, like there was a big rebuttal written um, by Dr. Andrew Kelly, who was the former CEO of the ISPCA on why that survey was ludicrous and false. Because coursers often say, oh, the hares are better taken care of in coursing areas and the population jumps, probably because they catch all the hares from different areas and release them in the one area nearest them. So of course yeah. it's going to be a bigger population near near coursing clubs. That never made sense to me why uh, it, the actual coursing club would be involved mm-hmm. in a survey like that. But even the most recent one, the discrepancy between 111,000 and 449,000 is huge. Which is it? And which side of the scale is it nearer? We don't really know. There's no great degree of accuracy. And for the reasons that I have explained, it's a hugely important issue, not to Mm. just animal rights people, but it should be to environmentalists as well. The Irish hare is the only species in Europe. It's it's unique to Mm. Ireland. So why would we be putting it at risk ever? Yeah. You know, doesn't make sense. not at all. And you explained that so clearly. So thank you. Like it's, it's really, really clear. And I guess before we move on to how people can help, I'm curious if you know, if people live in the countryside or have land or fields and they think people are coursing or they're near a coursing club, can you control people and just like not let them on your land um is like is that a thing or do do they they pro- they're probably all in kind of cahoots with other kind of landowners and maybe they're participating as well well it's a little bit of a little bit of both so there will be say coursing clubs that you know um have members that are maybe landowners or farmers that have uh, you know maybe hectares upon hectares and they allow the the catching and netting of hares to, to go on on their land but I have gotten numerous reports from other farmers and landowners that have said that they have no coursing, no hunting, no netting signs up all around their property. And then at this time of the year, they find um, coursing clubs members um, in trying to net hares in their land. Mm. Signs won't keep them out. Yeah, yeah. If, if you are a landowner or a farmer and you see unusual activity on your land, call the guards. 
because if it's your land, they can't be there. Whether coursing is legal or not is irrelevant. If it's your land and they're on it, get them out of there and call the guys. Okay. How can people help? So you're obviously protesting at the Department of Agriculture in Dublin City every Tuesday. You've got an amazing, really simple campaign people can get involved with. What do you need from the public? We need them most importantly to pressure their TDs because when these bills come up for vote, it's the TDs that get to vote, not you or I. So they need to be bombarded by their constituents. So I've emailed every TD in the country probably like a million times. That's not even point. an exaggeration if you know, Laura. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's true. Um, and they don't particularly care about what I have to say, but they do care about what the public yeah. have to say in general, um, especially in constituencies outside of Dublin. These TDs that are supportive of coursing, they need to be bombarded because... You know, we do need more people at protests. We do would love more people, at, you know, doing outreach around the country. We travel every Saturday doing outreach and leaflet drops and things. We could always do more help there. But it's the TDs that get to make this decision. And if you are emailing them, I don't care, you know, how many times you email them, email them 10 times, 100 times. It doesn't matter if they don't reply. It's about the volume they get in their inbox. And that's what mm. really helped with the fur farming campaign. They were getting hundreds of emails a week. And that's what made the TDs like stand up and, and actually listen to what the people wanted. And we can do the same with hair coursing, but we really need people to pressure them. We have sample letters on our Facebook page, which people can use, or they can keep it really simple. All you have to do is write to your TD and say, I would like, I would like you to support the upcoming bills to ban hair coursing. Thank you from your constituent. And then just put your name and even the town that you're based in. Amazing. That's all. Um, but it are really there helps. any ways or are there any like people can donate as well to NARA to help not just with this campaign, but other campaigns. And you're often at protests and stuff that people can join and being there at a Tuesday. What time are you at the Department of Agriculture every Tuesday? We're there every every Tuesday from half 12 to 2. Um, and if people are willing to come along, that would be absolutely fantastic. I know protests aren't for everybody, um, but everybody, you know, is welcome to come along. It really does help a lot, especially when TDs are coming in and out of their offices. It's great to show like a big presence. Mm-hmm. Um, so if people can come, that would be great. If they'd like to donate, it helps fund all of our leaflets. And by the way, we always pay for leaflets printed on recycled paper, <laughs> biodegradable ink, and we pay extra to offset the carbon footprint of the printing itself. Go. So they're extra ethical leaflets. <laughs> so if any environmentalist has gone away at a second, okay, we have we've got we've got all our uh, eyes dotted and t's crossed here. We do. If you put if you put them in water, they disintegrate. <laughs> I mean, wouldn't recommend. Read the leaflet first. Le- True leave story. it somewhere for someone to see. But just in case, just FYI. Um, um, that's really good to like to know and I think as well it's worth mentioning because this was a really really hopeful note when we were chatting at the Dublin Veg Fest and um, we successfully banned fur farming in Ireland people might not know like we used to have farms like warehouses st- stuffed with animals cramped in cages that would be killed for their for- fur until very recently and you pat you you and some other groups and other kind of politicians got that over the line we're probably like a couple of hundred people at any one time you know showing up to a protest or something like that so it's not like we need thousands and thousands of people like you as one person listening to this can really help annoy the tds enough 
to really support the bill is there anything else that you want to add to- well ju- just that like you know every person does count and that the more people that get on board and help with this the sooner we'll get hair coursing off the list and then obviously we want to ban fox hunting we're also working on um, a campaign a joint initiative with support to animal free research ireland and the irish anti-vivisection society to ban um, Botox animal testing mm-hmm. in Ireland. Um, and then we're also going to launch two animal agriculture campaigns next year. So uh, there's a lot going on. And the quicker we get hair coursing off the list, the quicker we can devote our time to the Amazing. next issue. So like for fur farming, for example, it's something I started campaigning on when I was 15. And it basically took like 15, yeah. 16 years to make it happen. So I, I, I don't want us to have to spend 15 years on hair coursing. I want yeah. it gone now but it needs people to help us pressure these TDs to make it happen. And then we're firmly on our way to a vegan uh, utopia. In and do we diet. know when the bills are going to be put up in the doll? They're in the lottery system. So you could literally get like a week's notice oh, when they're wow. going to be debated. Okay. So it could happen anytime. You, know, okay. you just don't know. Um, which makes it even more important that people bombard the TDs because it could be literally wow. anything. Okay. All right. That's really interesting to know. Is there anything else then that you would like to add for listeners? Uh, leaves they can take out of your book and they be related to veganism or not, or uh, your campaigns? Anything about living a bit more eco consciously and kinder to the planet and our fellow animal companions? I guess, like, basically, my like message I'd like to give out to everyone is is that like you can make a difference. You don't have to join a group or start a group. You can be a solo activist and you can do it and just be willing to be wrong with things. I'm (laughs) critiqued all the time (laughs) and I've learned to just take it on board. And sometimes it can feel insulting or you can feel a bit angry, but in the back of your head, you're like, oh, damn it, they're right. So just, you know, be humble, accept the, the occasional bit of criticism to do better and just know that you can change the world just yourself but you got to be willing to, to believe in yourself to do it. Um, and that goes for human rights, animal rights, environmental issues. They're all interlinked. So be the best you can be. And for me, that helps me sleep at night knowing that I'm trying my best. Not perfect, far from it, yeah. but I'm trying my best. So believe in yourself and you Lovely. can do it. You're such a good motivational speaker. Someone got Laura a <laughs> TED Talk, stat. <laughs> You've talked a little bit about a vegan utopia. And I love asking guests recently this question, which is inspired by Rob Hopkins, who talks about like the power of imagination and that we don't actually really imagine the world that we want to build. And that makes it a little bit harder to kind of get there sometimes. So if we get in a time machine and go to the future, a vegan future, where there's no oppression, people and animals are living in lovely harmony with each other and we have access to healthcare and food and we want for nothing. Can you paint a picture of this future or tell us at least one of your favourite things about it? What's it like there? Well, there's no oppression. There is equality for all species. Uh, Everybody has a home. Everyone is kind, supports each other and no one has to work to survive. It's a mutually supportive society, no capitalism, everyone is safe, everyone is happy, and you can live to your full potential with no stress, worries, or fears, and everybody is safe to be whoever they are, wherever they are, um, and just live their I best love lives. That. And it can be so easily done. And out of curiosity, that feeling of rage that you'd usually have, what's there instead? <laughs> Calm, oh. peace, 
<laughs> tranquility <laughs> these these mystical concepts um one might even take one might even take up a hobby for fun <laughs> oh my gosh learn something new for fun <laughs> guys can you hear it this is the future we could have like knitting for the crack and with no guilt oh my god Alor, it's been an absolute pleasure exactly. why not right you're why so not? no you're so true it's so yeah. right but thank you so much for all the work that you're doing um for animals, for humans, for the environment, for everybody. And yeah, hopefully more people can take a leaf out of your book and step up to the plate and be more open. And yeah, just thank you so much. I look forward to seeing you at the Department of Agriculture soon and banning hair coursing. It's going to be great. Absolutely. And right back at you. Now, I hope you guys enjoyed that. I love chatting to Laura. You might have heard us kind of clipping over each other uh, a little bit throughout the interview. There was a bit of a delay on uh, Zencaster, the platform we were recording on. So hopefully it didn't impede too much. Do check out the links below. Please do go on to Nara's website. Uh, donate to them if you can. And as Laura said, email your TD and ask if they support hair coursing and find out who does, who doesn't. And the ones who do support hair coursing we need to bombard them continue bombarding and annoying them and as we chatted about at Dublin Veg Fest like the power of being annoying is very underestimated it is literally why so many politicians cave under pressure because they don't want their office being called or emailed the entire time so do uh, find out out of your local TGs who supports hair coursing and then the ones that do let people in your local area know and and then get those emails sent. So I think that's everything. I'm not sure if there was something else I was meant to mention. I feel like there probably was. But hopefully it's not that important. Anyway, you can keep up to date with uh, me and my activism on social media. Bookofleespodcast.com Please do follow Laura and Nara um, particularly who will need support. And are really good at highlighting um, issues in Ireland that need more awareness. So yeah, I hope you guys enjoyed this chat. If you have any suggestions on people I would like you'd like me to interview, please do send them my way or topics even that you'd like me to cover, send them my way. And yeah, I hope you have a lovely Monday and I will talk to you again in two weeks time with another guest. Bye.